0: An important announcement, as you will hear in the podcast, I'm screening my documentary, Commie Camp, about the legendary summer camp, Camp Kinderland, which was founded by socialists in 1923 and still exists to this day, on Wednesday, October 4th at DCTV in Manhattan at 87 Lafayette Street. Now, the 6.30 showtime sold out, so we added an additional 9 p.m. screening. So please buy your tickets before these sell out as well. And to do that, you go to the DCTV website. That's dctvny.org s slash Firehouse Cinema and scroll down to Comic Camp or click on the calendar link. Again, that's dctvny.org s slash Firehouse Cinema. And just so you know, Medea Benjamin calls it a delightful documentary. Susan Sarandon calls it so much fun. Oscar-nominated screenwriter Josh Olson calls it a warm, funny, and delightful film. Writer Vivian Gornick calls it a thoroughly engaging and charming documentary, one of those rare films that is as hilarious as it is informative. Filmmaker Tammy Gold says, "'I found myself laughing, identifying, and crying all at once.'" Comic Camp is a celebration of love and resistance. Basil Hamden, Michael Moore's longtime collaborator and the executive producer of Fahrenheit 11.9 calls Comic Camp fascinating and timely and a much needed dose of hope and humor. So don't forget to get your tickets and see you at the movies. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm so excited to be here with you. We have an amazing show today. We will be talking to presidential candidate Marianne Williamson about her race, about politics, about the state of the world, about what it takes to get media coverage when you're running against Joe Biden. Then after we chat with Marianne, we're going to be talking with Lev Galinkin, a Ukrainian American journalist, and he's going to be talking to us about Canada's very interesting ukrainian nazi problem so make sure you stick around for that that'll be after our chat with marianne williamson please do like the stream make sure you like the stream hit the like hit the share hit the subscribe to subscribe you press subscribe and then the bell that helps grow the channel make sure you do that also if you can you can join us at patreon patreon.com slash the katie helper show again that's patreon.com slash the katie helper show you get way more content than you get if you don't join patreon if you can Join just at the $1 a month level. That is great. That helps make the show happen. And if you want that extra content, that's the $5 a month level. And again, you just do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. So if you're watching this stream live, you're in luck. You get to see the whole stream. If you're watching the stream later and you want to see the full stream with Marianne Williamson as opposed, as, as well as the full stream with Lev Galinkin, then uh, you will be able to do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Now, before I bring on Marianne, a very exciting announcement. A documentary that I made called Commie Camp is going to be screening in New York City. And Commie Camp is about Camp Kinderland. It's a camp that I attended as well as my mom and grandmother, as you'll see in the trailer that I'm about to play. And Kinderland was founded in 1923, which means that it is celebrating its 100-year anniversary. So I'm releasing the film... um, to celebrate that date. And uh, we're gonna show you a trailer of the film right now. This is Camp Kinderland. I went to Camp Kinderland and so did my mom and my grandmother. I love Camp Kinderland. But not everyone does. For some people, it's a politically left-wing Jewish summer camp with communist
1: roots. They walk in there as young skulls full of mush, and the liberal establishments at these places bend and shape their mind.
2: One of the very, very special things that camp is known for is for its
1: progressive propaganda
2: agenda.
3: This
4: is the sun.
3: Um, which, as you can see, is a peace sign.
2: Stop indoctrinating my children. Do
3: you think as kids you can make a
0: difference? If you just stop littering. Going to anti-war demonstrations with your parents. In my school, we saved an orangutan.
2: Get your kids out of this indoctrination. We love camps. Our republic will be lost.
0: If we wouldn't go there, we'd be lost. In order to save the children and the republic, there's only one thing for me to do. I'm going back to camp.
3: I know um, the word for queen cheese. Okay. Ready? Shmier. This girl wrote a letter under my bed. Please, you tell me is right? That said somebody has a crush on you. No!
2: Well today was really fun, I had a really good time, I hope for the other day it's going to be a lot funner, that would be amazing.
0: And that is Comic Camp, and that will be playing on October 4th, Wednesday, October 4th, in New York City at DCTV, at the DCTV Firehouse, which is a really cool actual landmark location that used to be a firehouse. Uh, and it's at uh, 87 Lafayette Street in Manhattan, so downtown Manhattan. And uh, then the, sh- the if you're not in the tri-state area, if you're in the tri-state area, get yourself to that screening. We'll put a link in the description. Uh, it'll be fun and funny. Uh, Susan Sarandon has blurbed the film. Medea Benjamin has blurb the film. Uh, Oscar nominee, uh, Josh Olson, uh, nominated for an Oscar for his screenplay uh, for A um, History of Violence. He also has blurb the film, all positive things, obviously. Uh, Basil Hamden, Michael Moore's executive producer on Fahrenheit 9-11, has blurbed it. So lots of cool people like the film, if I do say so myself. So make sure you come out to that. And if you can't catch it then, then shortly thereafter, it will be uh, for sale online at YouTube. So let's see. Without without further ado, actually with some further ado, because let me just read to you, uh, share with you some of the biography of the guest I'm about to bring on. And then we will actually bring her on. All right. So. Marianne Williamson is a political activist, author, non denominational spiritual lecturer, and New York Times bestselling author. Her career began in the 1980s, during which time she became deeply involved with HIV AIDS activism. A longtime champion for the LGBTQ community, she founded Project Angel Food to deliver meals to the homebound, unable to shop or cook for themselves. To date, the charitable organization has served over 16 million meals. She also founded the LA Center for Living, the Manhattan Center for Living, and co-founded the Peace Alliance. In 2020, she ran for the Democratic nomination for president of the United States, and is now a candidate challenging the candidacies of President Biden and Robert F.J. Kennedy. As an essential part of her platform, Williamson proposes a 21st century economic bill of rights, a department of peace, reparations for slavery, a department of children and youth, and a just transition from a dirty to clean economy. A progressive Democrat, Williamson proposes a new economic beginning, including universal healthcare, tuition-free college and tech school and a guaranteed living wage. So without any further ado, let us bring on Marianne Williamson. Hi, Marianne. How are you? Oh, I'm fine, Katie. And congratulations about that
4: documentary. That looks so cool. And I had no idea you were a documentarian.
0: Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. My mom went there. I went there and it still exists. That's the other cool thing about it is it still exists. And if I have kids, I will also send them there.
4: I understand
0: why. Yeah. And the kids are adorable too. So Marianne, let's see a lot to talk about. Let's start off with your domestic program. Let's start off with your transition a majority to a clean economy. What does that mean? Well, we need to declare
4: a climate emergency. We need to make a World War II level mass mobilization from a dirty economy to a clean economy, a just transition. We need to cancel immediately the Willow Project. Right now, the president is giving more uh, oil drilling permits. Uh, even than Trump did. This is not a time to be ramping up fossil fuel extraction. It's time to be ramping down fossil fuel extraction. Let's also remember that the US defense establishment is the single largest institutional emitter of greenhouse gases. So even though there are some healthy investments in green energy in the Inflation Reduction Act, they are completely nullified by the investments we're making in dirty. In other words, it's not enough to just say we're gonna invest in green, if on the other hand, you're also investing in so much uh, fossil fuel extraction, the old energy grid, that you're basically nullifying the benefits of anything else. Um, It's time to just declare a climate emergency and get about the work. And I think that the American people in in really being educated about this would be more than um, willing to embrace what this actually means, not only in terms of the weather, not only in terms of the air, the habitability of the planet, possibly over the next few decades, but also in terms of job creation. You know, a lot of the jobs that now uh, go towards uh, fossil fuel extraction, even at least indirectly, have to do with technology manufacturing research. Many of these moves will be lateral. You know, I've had people come up to me and say, "Miss Williamson, I'm making over $100,000 a year on uh, a job that you think is the kind of job that we need to phase out of. Are you telling me that you want me to go work for $15 an hour to uh, put up solar panels? Well, the answer is no, actually, because this can be strategized. This can be mobilized. This can be organized. And his, that man who spoke to me is exactly the type of person who should not and would not under my administration fall through the cracks. But we have to make this transition. And I think that like so many things in our society today, the change is going to come. The issue is, are you going to make the change wisely and willingly, or is it going to be thrust upon you? And uh, I fear for my country, and in many ways, I fear for the world if we are so unwise as to allow these changes to
0: simply be thrust upon us. So what kind of things would happen uh, after a climate emergency were declared? Well, the issue of a climate
4: emergency is that the president has the power to override certain things that otherwise you wouldn't. One of my favorite stories about Franklin Roosevelt is when Franklin Roosevelt, you know, at the beginning of World War II, once uh, Roosevelt knew we needed to get in, that, you know, the the free world was at stake here. the, The U.S. basically had nothing to speak of in terms of military power, and Britain had nothing. Meanwhile, uh, Hitler had been building up his military for five years. And every time he invaded a country, he was able to absorb the military capacity. So Franklin Roosevelt needs tanks and he needs ships and he needs planes. So he calls in the big three, the same is what's going on in Detroit right now, right, about big three. So he calls the big three into his office in Washington and he says, gentlemen, I need this many ships and I need this many tanks and I need this many planes. And the answers of the big three, the big industrialists in Detroit were, President Roosevelt, sir, we are patriotic Americans. We will get you those planes. We will get you those ships. We will get you those, um, uh, those uh, planes uh, and those tanks. As soon as we have sold our quota of cars, we'll be right at it, sir. And Franklin Roosevelt famously said, gentlemen, I don't think you heard quite what I said. I need this many tanks. I need this many ships. I need this many planes. You will not make another car until I get them. That's what it means for the president to declare an emergency. It means that that emergency overrides all other commercial factors. Now, don't get me wrong. Roosevelt knew that he couldn't achieve any of this without partnering with the great industrial powers uh, of the time, because they were not going to not make profits. He he had to form partnerships. And of course, we want that as well. the the uh, fossil fuel companies this is the thing not only have they known the damage for decades it's now well established not only have they known the damage that they were doing but they also know it's over they know it's over they just want to squeeze every last dollar out before they are forced to make the transition that a uh, declaration of a climate emergency would simply be the president of the United States saying it is not acceptable, it is not tolerable, and on behalf of the people of the United States, I'm saying it will not happen anymore. We are moving forward, and if you don't do it willingly, the powers granted me by the declaration of this emergency will mean that you will have to.
0: So another question that's related to, of course, climate is the question of uh auto workers and uh cars and technology tell us what your plans are for for instance the uaw what you're doing uh this week i believe is this are you making an exclusive announcement on the katie harper show have you announced this no i already put it on twitter the other night i'll be going tomorrow
4: morning i would have gone on monday but it was yom kippur today the president is there yes right back at you i didn't want it to look today like it was about me and the president being there. That theater is not what's important. What's important here is the UAW. So I will be going tomorrow morning. I uh, I read that Trump will also be there tomorrow morning. So that'll be interesting. But I, I hear, I'm, I'm not quite sure what's going on because I think he's going, I'll be at a Wayne plant. Um, but I hear that he's going somewhere where they're not actually striking. So I don't know what what, what Trump is doing, but I will be there and I will have the opportunity to, Uh, talk uh, to workers and to the public about why I, not only why I support the UAW, but also why I recognize, how I recognize, that I recognize that the struggle of the UAW auto workers is no different and is part of a larger picture of a really rebalancing of the American economy. Uh, We're living in revolutionary times. We're living, I think we're living in a soft revolution already. And I'm reminded of, of JFK's line, that those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. And I hope whether it has to do with the WGA strike, whether it has to do with Amazon and, you know, I, I give credit where credit is due. I mean, there are some actions within the Biden administration that are pushing back. And listen, this is not about the horse race. This is about getting things done for the American people. And, um, uh, the, the fact this revitalization of the labor movement, um, is, is, absolutely essential. I believe that n- there needs to be an inside outside strategy. There has to be a, a president who is genuinely in act as well as word in always pro-labor. And there has to be the outside strategy of the labor movement. Uh, you see it happening. And, you know, Katie, I'm old enough to remember, first of all, you know, my father was a Detroit labor organizer with a CIO before it was the AFL CIO. And my brother worked for Cesar Chavez in the late 60s. And I was raised in a home Um, If you ever cross a picket line, don't bother to come home. That was the home I was raised in. I was, even though I didn't go to the same camp you went to, that was the kind of home I was raised in. But I am old enough to remember when things started to change in this country. When I was growing up, labor was an indisputable, serious political force. And when Reaganomics, trickle-down economics, neoliberalism, and all of that ascended, The demonization of labor, organized labor, was so much a part of that. That's not to say labor didn't have its own issues at all. However, uh, to to watch how they were squashed, how they were demonized and minimized, peripheralized, how the right-to-work state laws came into being, and now to watch this revitalization is, I think, very encouraging, very encouraging for all of us.
0: And what do you think of Biden's position on the railway strike?
4: Ultimately, more than not, he sided. He sided with the railroad companies. I think, you know, whether it has to do with that particular strike, whether it has to do with what happened in East Palestine, the tyrannous, the tyrannous power. And I use, I do not use the word tyranny lightly. But we are talking about corporate tyranny in many of these cases, and I think that uh, the railroad uh, companies are one of them. Uh, even when Pete Buttigieg went to uh, East Palestine, finally. Um, and he sounded like a whining child. Every time we try to regulate, you won't let us. What is this, won't let us? I'm so tired, you know, whether it's the Republicans, when they're in power, um, don't even care to fight. In fact, they're there to enable the corporate powers. But to hear Democrats go, they won't let us. It's just enough to make you wanna inject them with
0: some spine, which is why I'm running. It's going to take a woman in there, isn't it? Yeah, perhaps. And certainly a woman who's good on women's rights, as opposed to, say, Hillary Clinton, who, when she was running against Bernie, of course, famously, did not support the fight for 15 and people who care about economics and um, women's rights know, of course, that most minimum wage earners are women and women of color. So that was an interesting example of Hillary Clinton, uh not actually being pro-woman? Well, the most important
4: thing we could do to help women right now is something I would do my first day in office, and that's call the archivist and tell her or him uh, to publish the ERA. I mean, that's the quickest, most potent way to close the wage gap between men and women. I mean, that will have an extraordinary economic effect uh, for women, and the president could do that now. Uh, Enough states have ratified. The president could call and demand that that be published, and he has not.
0: Yeah, a lot of people think that the ERA is mostly symbolic, but it actually has... It's actually not at
4: all. It's actually not at all. It would have a tremendous economic effect.
0: How come you think it's only symbolic? Who came up with that? A lot of people, I think, write it off as that. I don't. So what would the ERA do?
4: Well, it means that there is no laws that could be passed. I mean, the the wage gap between men and women, it will no longer be legal. You cannot have... um, and in fact, many people uh, argue that if we'd gone on a publicity ERA, that they couldn't have, they could not have uh, overturned Roe v. Wade.
0: Well, that's another question I have for you. So given how much the Democrats have dropped the ball on Roe v. Wade and how empowered the conservative wing of the, of the Supreme Court is, uh, and one could argue it's just a uh, conservative institution, what would you do to um, protect a woman's right to choose? Well, you need to codify, but in order to codify, you're going to need,
4: first of all, you're going to need, you know, the power in Congress. That's not something that the president just can come in and make happen. Uh, but I don't understand why we are, we are so precious about the filibuster. The filibuster came about in order to protect slave owners so, and racists. So I don't understand why we're so precious about carve, at least carving out, if not obliterating, the filibuster.
0: And what about childcare?
4: Well, in my economic Bill of Rights, uh, one of the things that we talk about is free child care. That's what I have. You know, my economic Bill of Rights, which is an extension really of, in the 21st century, of Franklin Roosevelt's Bill of Rights, universal health care, Tuition-free college and tech school. Let's cancel the college loan debt. Let's have free childcare. Let's have paid family leave. Let's have guaranteed housing, guaranteed sick pay, and guaranteed living wage. This is the thing, Katie. The ship is listing so far to one side that if you even say let's put it up just so that it's a level playing field on any on any any way you look at it, just a level playing field for the average American working person, there are elements in this country, including in the democratic party would say, wow, that's so left wing, that's crazy fringe stuff. But actually everything that we're talking about there is considered a moderate position in every other advanced democracy, including free childcare. I think that the the, uh, powers of government should use, should be used to help people thrive. You know, people say people want all these free things. First of all it's not free it's your own tax dollars and right now your tax dollars are going towards corporate subsidies for uh, these huge multi-billion dollar companies who are already making billions of dollars in profit often they're making profit doing things that actually hurt people hurt other uh, species and hurt the planet and in cutting cutting the tax Right For all the very richest among us. So we have, this is why a campaign like this matters. We have to just keep saying it. You know, Martin Luther King said, your life begins to end on the day you stop talking about, th-
0: am I boring you, Katie? I was just going to say, he, I was just going to say, she's going to think I'm yawning. I was about to sneeze and I was covering my nose to sneeze. That's why I muted myself. Yeah. But I didn't sneeze. Yeah.
4: So... Um, Yeah, Martin Luther King said your life begins to end on the day you stop talking about things that matter. The idea that there would not be a presidential candidate in this race saying these things, and to be honest, that there would be people who who know that these things are true, who believe these things, who would not be supporting that candidate is pretty shocking to me.
0: So I just want to say, I mean, I'm torn because I I don't want, I, I try to ignore the comments, but I want to say something. You and I disagree on certain things, and actually we're going to get to that towards the end of the interview, But something that really does frustrate me in some of the critiques, and I don't even want to give them oxygen, but I I will, because this is one of the first things that people were commenting um, when I tweeted about you coming on the show today. There's this line about you that um, you are doing this to sell books. And I would just like to, I mean, you can respond to that, but I just want to say something I find that to be such a disingenuous argument and you can have critiques of a candidate and you can have policy differences. But if Marianne wanted to sell more books, she wouldn't be in politics. Like your books that are very successful financially are not about politics. They're about something else. So I'm just giving you the chance to, to respond to that claim that, uh, that you're doing this to sell books?
4: Well, I remember when I was on The View um, in, the, in the last election, Megan McCain and Anna Navarro and all of them were saying she's just doing it to sell books. First of all, every candidate had a book that was about their agenda, that's what you do. I'm sure many people remember dreams of my father that, that Barack Obama had, uh, the audacity of hope that a Barack Obama had. That was a good thing, that's not a bad thing. I don't have a political book on this, on this campaign because I had already written that last time. It certainly did not sell books, although I will point out the one who did have a bestseller based on his book he had at the time was Andrew Yang. Nobody complained about that. I write spiritual books except the two political books that I'd written, one of which was to explain my agenda like every other one did Kamala Harris and everyone else, which is what a candidate does. I write. I make my living, however, writing spiritual books. The way to make, make money writing spiritual books is to go on a book tour, not a presidential campaign, and you talk about that book. I mean, all those people say I'm selling books. When have I mentioned the book? You don't mention a spiritual book. The way to sell a spiritual book, I can tell you because I've written a few of them, is to never mention politics. Talking about politics, being in politics has been actually Very bad for my career from a commercial sense. There is someone who worked for the campaign, who lost his job, who uh, got on um, uh, the Internet and said, it's just a book tour, folks. This man knows nothing about book publishing. He knows nothing about me, actually. And um, it's just very sad that people will take a narrative like that, like so many others about me, I might add, and run with it. Tell me what, tell me, you know, tell me what book I'm selling. That That's the interesting thing. What, what book am I selling? Because I don't know, which, which book do they think I'm selling? It's kind of like uh, which Crystal and which uh, person have I thrown a phone out recently.
0: All right. That's another one. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, I want to take it back a little bit, because another thing that you've dealt with are rumors about, like, not believing in medicine and that you're bad on LGBTQ rights. Can you talk about your early days with Project Angel Food? When my career
4: began, in a way, gay men in Los Angeles gave me my career. And I say that because not long after I started lecturing, the AIDS crisis really burst onto the scene and I was living in Los Angeles. Um, it wasn't that Western medicine wasn't trying because it was. It was, it was much like with covid people were trying. It was, it was, they were not coming up with anything. The difference. There was a, a similar panic. The AIDS crisis was a similar panic to COVID, but it was a flip side of it. With COVID, it was very easy to get, but the chances were, if you got it, the chances were you would survive. With AIDS, it was the opposite. It was a difficult disease to get, but if you got it, the chances were you would not survive. So there was great panic. There was great heartache in the era because Western medicine or any medicine, because there wasn't anything, you know, it's once again, not that they weren't trying because it took so long for anything to be available. And there was an almost eerie silence on the part of institutional religions who were working through their own homophobia or whatever. And then there was this, at that that time, young, I was in my early thirties, woman talking over in Los Angeles about a God who loves you no matter what. And about miracles, and it became my Tuesday night lectures became almost a place where we could all get together. You know, where in the eighties you went clubbing, in the nineties uh, you uh, you came to these lectures and went to spiritual support groups and so forth. I certainly never told anyone never to take their medicine, and I'll tell you, at that time there was no medicine. And when there was medicine, I uh, I mean, there's even a video out there of a of a man talking about how I told a young man at one of the support groups. uh, He said, what was he said? He didn't want to take his medicine. And I said, why don't you want to take your medicine? This was once I was AZT. And he said, well, it'll put me to sleep. And I said, well, you just take your medicine and you fall asleep here at the support group and we'll all be with you and you'll still hear what we're saying. I raised millions of dollars. I founded uh, nonprofit organizations. Uh, Project Angel Food has fed over 16 million meals. It was a Meals on Wheels. I gave book royalties uh, of a very high number in the Jewish religion, it says to give is good, to give anonymously is better. Um, somebody has taken one sentence out of my uh, a book about sickness being an illusion. It's the same way, it's in a section which if you read it, like Buddha says the world is an illusion, Einstein says uh, time and space or illusions of consciousness, albeit uh, persistent ones. The president is a Catholic. President Biden is a Catholic. He has stood up in church many times to say he believes in a virgin birth. Everybody gets that he, that he understands that there are scientific realities involved in giving birth and conceiving a child. Um, I'm a, you know, my sister died of breast cancer. I have osteoporosis. Um, To say that I don't go to the doctor or understand the ravages of illness is um, one of the more vile uh, narratives that has been projected onto me, Uh, but there are quite a few of them at this time, so what are you going to
0: do? Someone said in the comments, I'm trying to find it, but someone said, okay, what are we going to do about the people in East Palestine?
4: Oh, the East Palestine thing is actually getting worse rather than better. One of the first things I would do is declare officially declare a disaster. You know, in Libby, Montana, because of a disaster that occurred there, the Medicare for all was given. This is what should happen. First of all, we should have universal health care anyway. You know, this is the thing, Katie. The problem with the, with the East Palestine, Ohio, first of all, it's not an accident that Norfolk Southern, what, that that railroad car was through a neighborhood like that to begin with. Because, you know, and and with all credit to Obama, Obama had tried to regulate those kinds of toxic chemicals. He was not able to. This is why we were talking before about the tyrannous effect of of these railroad companies. So what they do is these are basically considered sacrifice zones where people do not have the kind of financial or political leverage to fight back and say not in our neighborhood. So the biggest problem when something like an East Palestine disaster occurs is that people have no capacity to absorb it. So if you're already living on the edge financially, paycheck to paycheck, if you don't have uh, healthcare, that's the, the, it's not only the, the derailment to begin with. In addition to the derailment, there was the fact that then they did the burnoffs that were not permitted. Some, let me tell you something. Somebody should be prosecuted. I would like to see somebody indicted. Some, somebody should be tried on criminal charges. But what Norfolk Southern did and continues to do to the people of East Palestine, I did a panel the other day. It's going to be on sometime soon uh, with Savage Joy Marie, who I'm sure you know. And some of the uh, the people in East Palestine, um, some of whom I met when I was there, um, people who were told who some of whom were told that their homes are contaminated, that they, they're losing their teeth. They have constant nosebleeds. They have migraines all the time. They are told their homes are contaminated. And then being told by, by Norfolk Southern, we'll give you $1,000. We'll give you $1,000. Ho- how were they ever going to sell their homes? Some of these people's homes were what they you know, had to, had to save in their lives to have these homes. And also another thing, Norfolk Southern is treating it like we only... We only uh, have responsibility to people a mile out. The problem goes over seven miles out into Pennsylvania. There are people who cannot go back to their homes. One woman on this panel, they have said, we are going to cover your rent where you are until March of 2024. And then where are these people going to go? They can't go back to their homes. They have been to Washington. They have spoken to senators. They've talked about the fact that they went to, to talk to senators And the women on this panel were saying, some of these senators said, we had no idea you were sick. They have gone to the EPA. They recorded a session with the head of the EPA, Michael Reagan, Sherry Brown. They're not doing anything. They just give these people the runaround. And it's horrifying. And when you ask them as president, what could I do declare a disaster, that's what we need is for the president to declare a disaster. It's like the president declaring a climate emergency. Once the president does an official declaration of a disaster, then everything that is necessary to actually provide help for these people is automatically provided. The president did uh, come out with an executive order and the executive order mainly says we're going to collect data. And you know, my interest isn't in their freaking data. It's in the human despair and the human suffering that is created by these situations. Um, it's, Horrifying neglect and abandonment of the people of this country uh, that we see in East Palestine. And one of the reasons I hope I win this election is to be able to help them in a way that they are not being helped now. And I can't imagine they're being helped in the future if uh, either Trump or Biden is president, inaugurated in 2025.
0: And Biden didn't even have the decency to pander to these people by going there. Where are the votes there? Right. Disgusting. Disgusting. Someone asked a question that's challenging. Why is she supporting the auto strikes when they are fighting for jobs that make things that affect the climate?
4: Well, the the, uh, automobile industry is not going away. The issue is to transition into clean energy and to including high speed rail, all of which will have jobs, too. The auto workers are not the people who should be paying the price uh, for the fact that uh, uh, we are uh, emitting greenhouse gases and so forth now this is another issue of course one of the things going on there has to do with moving to electric cars so it is good that they're moving to electric cars however the jobs of these people should be protected in the meantime not just in the meantime but even going forward and one of the things that we need you know if you look at the tens of thousands of miles of high-speed rail that they have in China This is not about whether or not there should be a transportation industry. This is about whether there should be a healthy green transportation energy uh, and uh, industry and whether people's jobs are protected, saved and transformed into the things that will both provide good paying jobs as well as a healthy economy and a healthy, uh, healthy environment for the American people in the years to come.
0: What about Joseph Biden's uh, position so far on student debt? Well, some people say that if he had just, at
4: the very, very beginning, I've heard Brianna talk about this, if he had just come in at the very, very beginning and said, cancel all of it, and some people, then they would not have been able to mount the challenge that they mounted. And also, if you talk to the people at the Debt Collective, he could still use the higher education bill. To me, the important thing uh, on on this business about the student loan debt that I want to make clear to the American people, these loans should never have existed. They are an expression of predatory capitalism. That's the problem. On one hand, you've got <clears throat> tens of millions of people, right, who are carrying these college loans out. Still, even with the 10000 off that he wanted to, t- to take, you still got over a trillion dollars. You still got over 40 million people who are carrying these. Until the 1970s, we had tuition free college and tech schools. You have them at um, in at University of Texas, you have them at the University of California, you have them at University of Florida. As a matter of fact, when the, the, the newly elected governor of California, Ronald Reagan came in and smashed that, which was the crown jewel of California that you could get. You know, I remember Elizabeth Warren used to talk about that, how inexpensive it was for her to get a world-class education when she was in college. That's what made um, some of the far right wing forces look at Ronald Reagan and say, ooh, Ooh, we like him. He's somebody we can use going forward. So the fact that young people who, you know, once again, government, it says in the Declaration of Independence that governments are instituted to to secure the rights, not thwart the rights, not exploit the rights. Not suppress the rights, but to secure the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That would be translating to these languages, self-actualization, spreading your wings. Getting an education is part of that. Government's job is to secure that, not to thwart that. So here are young people, particularly people of color. There's a real racial element with that one because people of color, particularly young people were told, get your education. That's how you're gonna close the wage gap. Get your education. So now you've got millions of these young people just because the banks and that malevolent strain of capitalism that puts its tentacles wherever there—it's just these, it's a heat seeking missile where there's a profit, where is there a profit center. Where is there a profit center? Where is there a possible profit center? Its tentacles are anywhere there might be a profit center. And where is there more of a profit center than where people are desperate? That's why, the high, that's why we have over a million people rationing their insulin. Why? Because people need insulin. You don't have this in any other advanced democracy where you have universal health care. You talk about rationing insulin. And I, was at, I spoke at Cambridge not long ago. They, they looked at me like, you've got to be kidding. They can't even conceive of people rationing their insulin. But let's go back to the college loans. So this is a desperation. I'll get, I'll get my degree. And everybody listening knows this to be true. So all these kids, they come out of college, And I have to say this, debt is crippling, but to be in your twenties, Katie, carrying tens of thousands of dollars worth of loan debt. And then we wonder where the mental health crisis comes from. Why are people in such anxiety? What do you think? This is so much of it. So you've got these people who come out of school. I talk to them all the time. I have these college loan debts. I got my degree in this. But if I go try to work in the field I got my degree on, I can't imagine ever paying off this debt. It'll take me years to get to the point where I'll even begin to. So I'm going to go work in a field that isn't even what I got my degree for, but where I might be able to get out of debt. So what the hell did I get the degree for? And that's why so many people now are saying, why even go to college, which is also very bad for this country. So that's why I think that these uh, debts should, these college loans should be canceled. They should never have existed to begin with. And I would use the full powers of the presidency to make sure of that.
0: What about your Department of Peace? What would that do? I think a lot of people don't know that peace building
4: is a thing. It's not just, oh, peace building. It's an actual thing. It's a set of, of skills. It's an area of expertise. There are four factors which, when present, statistically indicate that there will be a higher level of peace, a higher incidence of peace, and a lower um, incidence of violence. And this is true whether you're talking about a, um, a corner of an American city or you're talking about another corner of the world. Those four, um, those four uh, factors are higher uh, educational opportunities for children. Greater economic opportunities for women, a reduction of violence against women, and an amelioration of unnecessary human despair. Even Donald Rumsfeld, for God's sake, said we need to learn to wage peace. And um, JFK said, if we don't get rid of war, war will get rid of us. But we have our domestic war zones, too. So when I think of a a Department of Peace, this applies not only to... um, uh, international situations, but also to domestic situations as well. You know, Martin Luther King said there are two kinds of peace, negative peace and positive peace. Negative peace means there's no outright violence, but there's an underlying tension and anxiety. He said positive peace is where there is, he said that can only be predicated on justice and brotherhood. Just like we have a, a military academy, we should have a peace academy. And then a military academy, you get your education, but you learn the art of waging war when war is what the country feels it needs. And then you pay your country back by then serving in those wars. That is what a Department of Peace will do. There will be a peace academy and people will be trained. It's taking, it's taking the Peace Corps to a, to a much more evolved place. Peace Corps is now go there and do what you can. This is, we need to play, just like we have war games, we need to have peace games. We need to strategize. As president, I would wanna say, okay, what will it take over the next 100 years? How do we create a world? How do we create a world in which 100 years from now, war will be a memory? Now, some people say that's just completely naive. I say what's naive is to think the species will even still exist on this planet if we don't at least try. So we need to reverse engineer. We're going to have to evolve in ways that are way beyond where we are stuck now. But even that, I want to say something. I saw when I ran for president last time, and I feel at this time, the American people are not the problem. The American political system is the problem because our current political establishment sits on the will of the American people. Our government is essentially a legalized a system of legalized bribery, and legislator after legislator after legislator does more to acquiesce and to serve the short time profit profit maximization uh, short term profit maximization goals of their donors than the express will of the people. The express will of the people is not the problem whether it has to do with the fact that the majority of Republicans as well as Democrats want universal health care the majority of Republicans as well as Democrats want uh, 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 what, tuition-free college and tech school. And I believe that the majority of Americans, the majority of Americans, you even see that right now. You, you, you see that with a lot that's going on. You, you, you don't have to be a left winger today to say that the defense, the defense budget is too high. So um, I think that the American people are ready to be led in a far more enlightened direction including something like a Department of Peace. The problem is not creating the political will. The problem is that we have forces in this country, on both, in both parties, that do more to suppress the will of the American people than to facilitate its expression.
0: So what would this Department of Peace do about, let's say, Ukraine? Well, the Department of Peace would have less to do with what is happening in
4: Ukraine today and more to do with creating situations where there would not have been such a probability that something like Ukraine would even exist. You know, I'm not a pacifist. I do not believe that there is never appropriate need or use uh, for military action, but I see the military like I see a a surgeon. If you need surgery, then of course you wanna have the very best surgeon. The United States should not only have the very best surgeon, but the very best surgeon on hand. But a reasonable person tries to avoid surgery if possible. Now, I don't think that this specifically has to do with the Department of Peace, but it certainly has to do with who I am and who I would have been and would be as president. I don't think anyone, no matter what your position is. I don't
0: mean to cut you off. I just, can you put down your pen? I know I'm saying that because I know our editor is is going to, yeah, yeah, Yeah,
4: I'm sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm sorry. It's just so we can get Um, this out sooner. Yeah. I don't care what your position is on Ukraine today. I think that all of us can see that there was very irresponsible behavior on the part of the US government poking the bear when it comes to Russia's view of NATO. And I think that that's not specifically related to a Department of Peace per se, but it does have to do with a very different, uh, more sober uh, perspective on the part of the US government and its um, lack of humility and lack of reasonable analysis, including psychological analysis towards someone like a Vladimir Putin. They poked him, they poked him, they poked him. And that was more than unwise. So what would you do now? Well, you know, I'm an anti-imperialist, and I think if you're going to be against U.S. imperialism, you have to also be against Russian imperialism. That's how I see it. I do recognize the things the United States did wrong in terms of poking the bear. I do recognize including uh, some uh, fast and loose with NATO that was unwise, uh, the HS missiles in Poland, and so forth. I, I'm not in any way excusing that. However, to me, in my mind, none of that justifies uh, Vladimir Putin's behavior now. I think a lot of our, what's happening with Ukraine comes down to how you view Putin. Do you think this is all he wants? Some of my friends say, this is all he wants. That's all he wants, and he'll be happy. Just let him have that. <sighs> I don't believe that. You look at what happened with Crimea. You look at what's happening now. He takes what he wants. He takes a beat. He comes back for more. Um, when you look at Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, when you look at the fact that Finland, which has played this uh, a neutral, they didn't want to be part of NATO. They didn't want any part of it. And now they want to be in NATO. I think that, you know, when I hear someone like Robert Kennedy uh, talk about the humanitarian disaster, which we all see. But he talks as though. Let's end the humanitarian disaster. If the United States just pulls out all support for Ukraine, Ukraine. The idea that that would end the humanitarian disaster is absurd. It would begin the next phase of a profound humanitarian disaster. uh, When you think in terms of Putin and the, uh, basically we're talking about the occupation of Ukraine. That's another thing I find some people very selective in where they have a problem with occupations. That is an occupation and that is a grabbing of land and a sovereign, sovereign country. I know a lot of people, particularly on the left, do not agree with me about this. There has to be a negotiated settlement. That's the only way that this can end. You know, you said to me a couple months ago, talk to Aaron Mate, talk to Aaron Mate. I called Aaron. We talked for quite a while. And he said to me, we're not that far from each other. We're not. Of course, it has to be a negotiated settlement. That goes without saying. I would like it to be a negotiated settlement when there is still a Ukraine to negotiate.
0: But isn't there more of a chance? I mean, there is a Ukraine, right? Ukraine exists now. And we know that there would have been a more favorable negotiation earlier, like in April of 2022, which we know Boris Johnson scuttled. So why do we think that it'll get better the longer the war goes on? Or why do you think that, I should say? To hear the rest of my discussion with Marianne Williamson, in which we discuss the war in Ukraine, whether she would run as an independent and or as Cornell West running mate, please go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And now here's my discussion on Canada's Ukrainian Nazi problem with Lev Lincoln, Mark Ames, and Yasha Levine. It's a really fascinating discussion, and to hear it in its entirety, which I really recommend, you can once again go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. We are going to move on to the second segment of the show, and we're going to be talking with Mark Ames of Radio War Nerd Podcast, Lev Galinkin of many places like The New York Times and uh, The Guardian and The Forward, and Yasha Levine of The Russians Podcast. Welcome.
2: Hey, how you doing, Katie? Good, you? Good. Lev, Yasha. What's up, guys? Good to see you. Good to see you.
0: Yasha, you're muted. I think maybe you're afraid that too many Soviet Jews at once.
3: It's it's a Jew It's good that I was censored, actually, because I was um, doing a Heil Hitler. <clears throat> oh. <laughs>
0: That's never good. Yeah. 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 Well, In honor I- of Canada. In honor of Canada. Of Canada. It's, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's,
3: it's always Canada Day. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you guys all so much for joining. And I thought, Lev, you could start off by setting up what happened. Because, Lev, you have some recent articles that you wrote at The Forward tracing what just happened in Canada. Uh, we also have, of course, video footage. But maybe you could set it up first. Then when we, we can show what what actually happened. And of course, when I say what's happened, we're talking about Ukraine Nazi gate.
1: Yeah, well, what happened is... Um A bunch of people in Western Ukraine uh, joined Hitler and uh, welcomed the Nazis and formed a uh, Waffen-SS division, and they all had a lot of fun. Um, One of them indeed wrote that uh, it was uh, the best times of his life, 1941 to 1943. Fast forward, and they uh, painted themselves as war victims and as freedom fighters, and then Canada took them in with open arms. They uh, continued having fun in Canada. They uh, built monuments to themselves. They had lives. They grew old. And one of them was celebrated Yes, uh, three days ago in the Canadian Parliament, where he was presented as a fighter against Russia, which he technically was uh, alongside Adolf Hitler and others who fought against Russia. Ivan Kachanovsky, who is a uh, professor from University of Ottawa. He was the first one to report about him on Twitter. And then I uh, was the first one to write a story about him. And eventually uh, things went uh, not as good for him. So right now Poland is thinking of possibly extra- looking into extraditing him for war crimes. And um, Justin Trudeau uh, issued a half apology before talking about how we need to be careful about Russia uh, because that's what it's really about, Russia, and um, uh, the Speaker of the House resigned. And um, Vol- Volodymyr Zelensky, who was there, uh, the, uh, who was there, and who was one of the people enthusiastically cheering for him, uh, has so far said nothing um, at all.
0: Right. So let's take a look at this. Um, let's take a look at this speech that the Speaker of Canada's Parliament gave, in which he praises this elderly gentleman. And then we'll take a look at the elderly gentleman. But let's just take a look at the speech first.
1: Here in the chamber today, Ukrainian-Canadians, Ukrainian-Canadian world veteran from the Second World War who fought the Ukrainian independence against the Russians and continues to support the troops today, even at his age of 98. His name is Yaroslav Hunka. And uh, I was going to say he's in the gallery, but I think you beat me to that. <laughs> but I'm very proud to say that he is from North Bay and from my riding of Nipissing Tomiskaming.
2: God, I just i hope they just play that over and over and over for the rest of my life. You know, that is the only thing that finally bursts that that Ukrainian, Canadian, emigre, Nazi bubble, because nothing else would do it. Um, It's just, it's incredible. Like, there was that pause when when he says, and he fought the Russians in World War II, and all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute. Russians were allies. But then he just kind of went on, and, you know, it was just like a slight little brain fart, but but they're so, I mean, they've been doing this, over and over so often that i think that no one expected that this would actually be the thing that got them in trouble because this has been going on endlessly i and, was yeah. i was oh, yeah. I, okay so i have to admit I, I spoke to my sources in canada um but i, I was having like back and forth with other people who have been researching this in canada um who've been extremely frustrated for you know many years now about how hard it is to break through, uh, into the Canadian discourse. It's like, these are Nazis, these are Nazis, you know, and, but we talked about this and this was different. Um, and I actually did think this would break that it had to break through. And I think Lev's article had a big, big influence on kind of pushing the discourse to a new level, because I did notice that when people were calling it out, like on Twitter. Normally you have like, uh, you get used to sort of the bot fauna and the bot fauna, uh, the troll fauna that came into like my replies, for example, was very different than the usual one. They were a little nervous. And then when Lev's piece came out, it was like, "What? this is in a Jewish, you know, reputable Jewish, uh, magazine or the the forward and, um, that made them even more nervous and you saw them sort of trying out different. Narrative rebuttals like, um, he was only 16 or 17, yeah. Well, when he was, you know, then he wrote that 1941 to 1943 were the best years of his life, and then he joined the Waffen SS, volunteered, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He volunteered. Yeah. But, right. but it's like, he, but he's 80. Now, he, and somebody said, yeah, he's only 80 when he wrote that those were the best years of his life, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, maybe when he's 90, I mean, he look, yeah, when yeah, right, you he were
0: he 16, was 16 years well, old, he was a naive, he was a babe. Old. Yeah, he was talking a about his woods. youth
3: in general. He was talking right. about his youth a in even general. A babe in the Nazi yeah. woods.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well,
3: you know, I mean, look, this is the culmination. I think. I think the people who don't really know the backstory to how 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 the Canadian Parliament can actually you know bring a Nazi uh, into the gallery and give like a full house standing ovation like it's the end of like you know uh, that Phantom, was like uh, the opera seconds long. You know, like I know. Uh, no, that was, it was like, like it was the like please come out one more time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was like yeah. a full. I mean yeah. it's it's like what now I'm on core how many years it's been it's what seventy-five it's been a, at least a 75 year old project, you know, ever since the ever since the end of World War II. I mean a 70, 75 year old project to buy uh, this Ukrainian community that's been in exile in Canada. Um, um, that, you know, I mean not, not everyone was like a fascist or a Nazi collaborator, but the core of that community, like so the brain trust of that community, they were and they were extremely ideological. They were part of this hardcore fascist movement that wanted to create uh, a kind of a, a version of uh, you know what Hitler was doing in in Germany. They wanted to create that for themselves uh, in in Ukraine. They wanted to create a racially pure Ukraine, <laughs> um, free of Jews, free of Poles, free of uh, of Russians, and um, and they uh, you know nearly succeeded. You know, and and a lot of these people either you, through just as in leadership roles or in actual hands-on hands-on uh, experience, ethnically cleansed and genocided Jews and 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 Polish people from uh, territory of what is modern you know Western Ukraine and, and now and and you know even Central Ukraine they went pretty far they went pretty far to the east you know and and so and so a lot of these people the brain trust uh, found refuge in the West they found refuge in America they found refuge in Canada they found refuge in the UK. And uh, with uh, support from, uh, you know, I, I won't name these institutions, uh, three-letter agencies uh, frequently, uh, they get, had funding from, from the U.S. government, from covert uh, projects uh, from the CIA, and they, you know, they didn't need this help, but they had it, and they had this, their support, and they essentially w- w- went, on, went uh, on this revisionist, they did this revisionist project where they recast their... Um, sort of genocidal fascist political movement into one that was about democracy. It was about and, just and fighting communism,
2: decolonialism, de- yeah. de- de- right, or decolonization. Yeah, like that would be called. Yeah, yeah. they were like de- they, they were really... trying to
3: decolonize Ukraine from the yeah. Soviet Union, and so they were just fighting the Bolsheviks, and they they were you know, fighting not just on the, uh, for themselves but on behalf of all the enslaved people, you know, mm-hmm. of, of, of the Soviet Union for the for the you know the Latvians, the Estonians, the Lithuanians. The Georgians and I mean, to preserve is,
2: white Europe. I mean, well, they, they, they don't. Yeah, they period. don't talk about that. that. That's not the rebranded that's version. part of the
0: that's, discu- It's not part of the discourse. It yeah, kind I mean, of like
2: is, the, but they use slightly different language yeah, to I mean, protect Europe anti- anti- from the Mongols in Russia, is what yes, they say. Yes. Yeah,
3: but they and so they recast themselves as this, you know, basically a kind of good Democrats, patriots, anti-communists, uh, mm-hmm. first and foremost, and they have been very effective in um editing their the history of their movements and 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 uh, and to the point where um and you know and to the point where you know someone like in 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 Canada yeah, I mean Canada is probably the most extreme version of that because you couldn't get away with this stuff in America I mean you could have you know the prime minister of Canada Chrystia Freeland you know constantly meet with these Ukrainian groups who are, I mean, they are basically—it's just—it's crazy. They're—they're—they're they're, they're like rebranded logos that they that they that they have for themselves. It's like the the League of Uk- of Ukrainian Canadians, for instance, right? Their logo it has like a maple leaf in the center, and it's kind—it's of, kind of this triangle. It is—is is, it is the logo of uh, the OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, that was led by Stepan Bandera, the one that was basically—you know—he he is like the the Hitler of, of, yeah. of Ukraine, basically, you know, like the little Hitler of Ukraine. It is exactly the same except they just stuck a maple leaf on it, you know? Uh, and and they changed that a couple letters nice. around. Yeah, and then and then you have, you know, the top politicians from in Canada meeting with them, tweeting about it constantly. Yeah. And and it, it's in the open, you know? And so you have this just it's it is Canada is just this really an extreme case of this. It's it's almost, you know, it's shocking that it that that, that this is this is allowed to go on and um I am very glad that this finally happened. Me too. I mean, this I is, for yeah. a lot of us, yeah, for a lot of us have been writing about this, yeah. following this, this is like a, almost like a cathartic moment because, yeah, yeah. yeah for well, the first time, it's actually something's... A, a lot of us have been keeping each other sane because yes. I would
1: be like, Mark and Yasha, Nazis are bad, right? Like, <laughs> a thing, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. just, just yeah. checking because, know. Felt, you know, I just want to add one...
3: Go ahead. Go ahead, Yasha. No, or... no, 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 no. You please. No, go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll interject okay. later.
0: There's, and I should there's... mention, by the way, for people watching, I think I joked about this earlier, but Lev is Ukrainian-American Jewish. Yasha, how do you identify? I don't That's want to put you question. in a box.
3: Uh, well, I mean, you know, I uh, half of my family, did I'd say three quarters of my family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm a, a, a born again communist. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, but, uh, you know, a third of three, three out of four of my grandparents come from, you know, Ukraine. Uh, you know, I was born in, in, you know, what is now the Russian Federation. I mean, I was born in the Soviet Union, uh, in Leningrad. So I don't know, I don't know how yeah, I, I, right. as, as a Soviet Jew, as a yeah. Soviet American, I, yeah. I don't really know. And what then, my
2: and is. Mark, yeah. Mark, uh, California Jew, but California my, uh, Jew, yeah. but my, my, uh, roots are, I mean, um, uh, my grandmother's mother's family's from Ivana Frankivsk, which is now like a stronghold of, of ultra far right Bandera nationalism, oh, but wow. used to be Jewish um mm-hmm. and you know they were all exterminated at first by pitodas and you know other ukrainian groups in the from 1918 to 1921 and then of
1: course a like 200 survived out of 20,000 like
0: yeah. it was like, yeah and just in new york too was family from belarusian stuff but yeah yeah, yeah. Um, i mean
3: my family my my uh you know my family uh essentially <clears throat> Uh, as far as I can reconstruct some of the history, because this wasn't really talked about in my family. I mean, they fled the the famine in Ukraine, uh, from what I can understand. Right. You know, right. with, uh, trying to like why they left the shtetl at the time that they left, and they you know ended up in Crimea, and uh, they kind of like ran from the from the famine, and so they were part of the you know what they it's now known as the Galadamor, the the famine in in, the, in Ukraine, mm-hmm. and so they were Jews, and they were affected like a lot of Ukrainian Jews were affected in this famine. Of course, Jews. You know, they were not they were a minority in Ukraine, but they were a large minority. And like everyone who lived at the time during the famine, um, they were affected by it. Uh, And so, you know, yeah, I thought we caused it, Yasha. Well, yeah, that, that we, well, that's, exactly. that's, that's, that's the, the, it's a typical self-hating Jew. You know, you just yeah, famine exactly. yourself just because yeah. yeah. you just hate. Yeah. Yeah. We put ourselves in the gas chambers too. self-famining, you know, like, self-gassing. Yeah. But so yeah. I
0: mean, this is, so this is crazy. This story, like you guys are saying it kind of, it finally broke through Lev. What, what can you tell us about this actual particular, uh, Nazi? Well,
1: yeah, first of all, uh, that's a great question, and I will then proceed to answer the thing that I wanted to say. Okay, to yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, do you want to – no, you go first then. I forgot. Right. I cut okay. you off with my genealogical. I just right. realized that people watching may not know that you're a Ukrainian-American Jewish right. so, journalist, which two, is
1: – Two things. Yeah. First of all, Yasha has been writing, and he should plug it. He should, he's been writing a phenomenal just history, and it's – I don't even know what it is. It's part memoir, part family history, part just uh, – uh, a story about how immigrants are used and are woven into uh, Americans' foreign policy, blah, 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 blah. It's just, it's been fascinating. Okay? Thank
3: you, man. Thank you very much.
1: One. Two. I don't have the exact info for this, but one thing I found it also fascinating is that an ancillary benefit of bringing in these uh, Waffen-SS men was they used them as strike breakers. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah.
2: I wanted to say that to you. No, that's a great point because we have to remember that Ukraine, so we, we know the Ukrainian diaspora now is very reactionary right-wing nationalists. It wasn't like that. And Go ahead, Lev, but it's a really important point to make. And there are still a lot of, Ukrainians, like especially in Canada, who are angry about this. And they've been key to exposing mm-hmm. um, you know, for all of us, uh, things like Christian Freeland's grandfather. That's thanks
1: to Ukrainian
2: immigrants in Canada. So yeah, well, Go it's
1: ahead. 99% of Ukraine fought against the Nazis. It's like yeah. I, I I hate it when Western media is like these people are seen as heroes in Ukraine. Yeah. They're, seen not. They're seen as heroes in the very tiny part of Ukraine. Yeah. But um, they were brought in strike strike is because, I mean, you have people who need jobs, who are immigrants, who need jobs. You have people who are well-organized. You have people who are excellent at carrying out violence and experience. And you have people who are programmed to
3: hate anything that smacks of socialism. And ad- communism. Yeah. Yeah. So there's- Communism, yeah. Yeah. The what? Yeah, I mean, because yeah, because there was a pretty strong communist party in in Canada. I mean, the union presence in Canada was it was very strong, and so they were brought in as like fascists, being again, you know, anti-communist. Yeah. They were brought in as anti-communist muscle to break up the unions. Yeah,
2: fascism was yeah. was violent strike breaking. At for, right. I mean, that, they they evolved from violent strike breaking to a larger pro- program, but yeah. So,
1: so don't pro- quote me.
0: Larger but, program, if you will. Yeah. Sorry.
1: <laughs> <outfit. good> <laughs> Um, I'm surprised none of, uh, none of us has said that we did not see this coming. I, I know <laughs> that was good. That, was good. <laughs> that made me lol. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, there were strike breakers, and I think—don't call me on this. I'm going to do some more research, but I think there's evidence that some Canadian business magnates actually played a key role in bringing them in, specifically for that reason. Um, that's right, that's right, yeah. But the third and the biggest thing that I want to say is, okay, there is these people these people who murdered the Jews and the Poles, um, and the people in the diaspora who whitewashed them—they are essentially doing their jobs, for lack of a better word. Yes, I mean, the the people who are whitewashing them—they they love them, they think they're great, and they're doing you know. So they they they, they put together bullshit historical narratives and all that. Part, okay, there is one group of people, one one group that was not doing their jobs, and that is the. Canadian Jewish organizations for a long time. Okay. These are the people who have large buttons on their websites that says, please give me money to fight anti-Semitism. Okay. And the I I don't know about Yasha, but I mean I grew up just I was idolizing the American Jewish communities who helped us, who 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 brought us over here out of the Soviet Union. And I had the Awakening of my life when I started contacting these Jewish organizations, I'm like, "This is happening. These people are the Nazis." Like, you know, obviously you're going to speak out, right? Like, I was like, "They didn't know," and it, you know, the awakening was to find out that they did know. Uh, they were just remaining; they were choosing to remain silent, mm-hmm. and. The biggest, I'll tell you, that uh, you know, I just, last uh, month I reported about Philadelphia and uh, monuments in Philadelphia. SS Galician, this unit has monuments in U.S. soil in Detroit and Philadelphia. And the difference, the biggest difference out of everything is that the Jewish groups in Philadelphia, the regional Jewish groups, were like, holy shit, this is awful. And they started speaking out. That was the one the, the, people who were supposed to do their job did their job. Okay. And finally, in Canada, like it's like the emperor's new clothes. You know what I mean? Like Jewish groups spoke. The people who are supposed—they did their job, and that was like the biggest thing ever. And there's the silence before it. To me, was one of the most shameful things imaginable.
3: Lev, actually, I wanted to ask you about this because I was following the story, and you were writing about it. Obviously, the um, you know about the uh, about the monument again to the SS right uh, in uh to the to the ukrainian ss division um there's a monument to it in philadelphia and 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 it isn't just the um um ukrainian it has also the una uh logo on it right which is the ukrainian mm. national um what is
2: it The, uh, the, the you know. no the, it's the, UNA. Uh, it's the UNA.
3: una it's i guess it's uh, yeah ukrainian national, national army, army oh, yes yes okay. At yes, the very different. end
1: of the war, the right. yes, very yeah. end of the war, they were briefly renamed. Yes, the they separate. renamed themselves. Yes, <laughs> you
3: yeah, know? they rebranded for for the coming yeah. for the coming kind of like yeah. re- re- whitewashing um, of, of of their movement. Yeah, yeah, to, to, yeah it to,
1: conveniently to, does not have the attention grabbing SS. So
0: no, the no, no they it the Ukrainian division. SS, yeah, and
3: they call the Ukrainian division, which is you know they rebranded themselves at the very end. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was interesting because I was following it. And do, let me ask you this. Do you think actually, because because these are big or Jewish organizations that actually said, hey, what the hell, uh, Philadelphia, like, why is there, uh, you know, a monument to an SS division here in, in our backyard? I mean, these are big Jewish organizations. I mean, one of them is the Jewish Federations, right? Um, the Jewish Federation of Philadelphia, which is part of the larger Jewish Federations sort of umbrella group, which is, you know, like, kind of like. You know, uh, I don't know, like it brings together all of these regional foundations in America, very powerful group with a lot of money uh, and a lot of influence. And then there's there's also the um, the another group that that American Jewish Committee and uh, the AJC, yes, Mm -hmm. the AJC came in, which is another big, big one. Do you think it'll actually have an impact? Because I feel like, okay, they protested, they did their thing, but like. I just, it, it ended there, you know, it just seemed well, like it that, ended there. Well, it yeah. didn't,
1: uh, I'm, uh, I'm working on a piece that's going to come up tomorrow, but in the meantime, it's been boarded up. Um, oh, okay. It, the monument has been boarded up
3: yes, and I saw that.
1: other people covered it with a Ukrainian flag and put yeah. flowers
3: on it. So it's been, wow. So, so there's like a little, so, like a little war that's going on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. You know, it's like when the Jews make you board up your monument, but you still want to show love. Um,
0: <laughs> I hate that. Hate when it happens. Zelensky yeah.
3: should travel there and uh, you know put some, yeah, so, uh, some flowers so on there. Yeah. What do
0: you guys think? What is the backstory here? You have this Canadian, like very very goyasha Canadian guy, right? Saying like praising this Nazi. Does he not know? Does he know? But he thinks it's politically expedient. Like what? It, what? What happens here? How did this happen? Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.